I remember during my first internship, standing on the 12-story balcony in Madison with a developer who was an interesting guy, kind of a colorful character. But we were standing there, and I had been doing financial analysis for a proposed office building and performance venue that he would condo out across the street. And we'd run the numbers, and we had the site under control, and there was going to be some TIFF involved, and as you can imagine, and so on. We're standing there, and we've done all those things, and yet I will never forget him looking across the street at this vacant lot saying, is this going to work? He audibly said, is this going to work? And one of the metaphors that I use in part two is that every building is a startup. And you may have been a successful entrepreneur in the past, but every building, and in this case, that was going to be a, you know, a $30 million uh, venture, anything can happen. You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. So many times we hear about how we wish we had a different set of developers or or we're so frustrated with developers or developers are just uh, greedy people. Uh, (laughs) You know, the pushback I think is, is logical. Like, hey, if you're living in a place, you're living in a place built by a developer. If you've been around Strong Towns for a while, you know that we are kind of reflexively pro-developer, particularly pro-little guy. And I came across a book called The Birth of a Building by a guy named Ben Stevens. Ben received an MBA in real estate and urban land economics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He works as a project manager at a national real estate development firm. He lives in Chicago with his wife and their two children. And in his free time, he's a blues musician and the host of the Skyline Forum. He's agreed to join us today to talk about how the little guy can get ahead developing. Ben, welcome to the Strong Nouns Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Chuck. This is a great book. I didn't tell you this, but I, I uh, right out of college as an undergrad, as a back in 1996, as a uh, well, like 22-year-old, I was crazy enough to go to the bank, and they were insane enough to give me the money to build my own house. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, I, I had nothing in the way of experience, and I thought they would laugh at me. They're like, oh, here's a hundreds of thousands of dollars. Go out and build it. Back in the roaring 90s. Yeah, yeah. So I'm reading your book and I'm going through it and I'm like, gosh, I wish I had known. <laughs> well, <laughs> There's so much here I wish I had like thought through when I embarked on this audacious project. How'd you get started in real estate? And, and then I want to ask you about why you wrote this book. So let's start with how you got started. Well, I uh, was in the nonprofit world for a long time, lived in Germany for a long time with my wife, and uh, that's a story in itself. But um, during my time in Berlin, where we lived for about three years, I befriended a number of architects and uh, urban planners, and so was seriously considering for a bit getting into what they do. I was just fascinated by their work, and obviously it's tangibility. It's very, anybody who works with cities and buildings, That's I think that's one of the allures for everybody. It's It's uh, you build something that could have a legacy. So I was interested in what they were doing and a variety of circumstances ended up getting into development. But I I, I wrestled uh, between those different fields, Uh, development, which I didn't, I don't think I even knew what development was when I started architecture and urban planning. And so I got into an MBA program uh, at uh, UW-Madison, which you mentioned. My wife is from Madison originally, so that was a good compromise to get get back from overseas to being close to where she was from. I brought that interest in those different fields. And generally, you know, we, everybody has to specialize at some point and that's, that's, you know, to be expected. But I, I, I felt like I, I was specializing too quickly. You know, the program was real estate development finance. And I was like, well, what about architecture? What about construction? What about planning? Um, and those, those different things. So one of the events that I put together while I was at uh, the University of Wisconsin was called the birth of a building. And I, I had been involved during an internship in a relatively large development project there in Madison. And through that project, I knew the city's 
head of urban planning. I knew uh, a relatively senior guy at one of the construction firms that was involved. Obviously, I knew our architect. And so I put together an evening where all four of us came together to talk about this one project in a 360-degree perspective. So it was called The Birth of a Building. And everybody had about 15 minutes to talk about when they first heard about the project, uh, what stage it was in, and how it evolved over their in their time, you know, kind of with hands-on, so to speak. And that was just something that I really savored. Obviously, yeah, that, I don't that's think... That's genius. That's really... It was, it was yeah. great. It was great. And, you know, sometimes in education, you'll hear, you know, the next generation so-and-so is going to be this, this, that, that, and that. We can't all know everything, which is one of the major theses of my book in the development process. But nonetheless... I feel like maybe we specialized a little too early. And so as I exited school and had had those experiences and also was just trying to con to find ways to continue to to grow my skill set and answer questions, um, the book seemed like a, a fun thing to do. So that's kind of how I, I got into the book and we can talk about that. Well, this idea of sitting around as kind of like a, a exposition and saying, all right, here's the, here, here are the, all the different players. That's a fascinating kind of setup. In your mind, who's the target market here? I don't think that I am. Maybe I was at, at age 22, but mm -hmm. um, I, I've got some questions related about cities, but I, I think, you know, who do you expect to pick up this book and who would really benefit from it? I think I have um, students in mind, but that student's in a wide variety of settings. So I'm speaking tomorrow at the University of Illinois, Chicago to the urban planning department, but the book is already in use at a number of schools, so it's in use at my alma mater. I think they're picking it up at UNC Chapel Hill and at Clemson and some other really fantastic programs. So I I tried to write it, you know, I think one of the hardest things in education is forgetting what you didn't know when you started. And you kind of begin on chapter six instead of chapter one. And I love taking my kids swimming and and sometimes we'll go to these pools that kind of are a zero gradient, you know, you start and it's about a half inch deep, but it goes all the way to the deep end that way. And I was trying to set the book up that way so that you don't have to have any background in business, which of course I did not myself, or finance or any of these things. But by the end, you know, you, you can go as deep as you want to in some of the footnotes and appendices. And to the point that you mentioned about all the people involved, in the beginning of part two, so the building is, uh, the, 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 the book uh, rather is in two parts. Part one's kind of the birds and the bees, why do people make buildings in the first place? Part two is pregnancy and delivery, and it all kind of uses the metaphor of my son's birth. But in the intro to part two, I talk about, you know, when my wife had our first son, there were doctors, nurses. Um, she had some people helping her do rehab. There was, in Germany, there's this great system where they have a basically a midwife that comes to your house after the birth and does all these different things. And you know, we could have tried to learn any one of those different things to self-perform it, but it would have been strictly impossible for Becky and myself to to learn all the different things that were required. So we just kind of had to be in the conversation. And that's, I think, how this book is set up. So there's, you know, four chapters on urban planning. There's four chapters on financing. There's four chapters on finding and acquiring land. It, it's not a, a mastery approach, it's an exposure approach. Eliminate, you know, unknown unknowns, uh, so to speak. I've heard developers called Renaissance people in a way. And it's funny because I've known some really dumb developers. And yes. you think of them like, oh, come on, like the, you're Cro-Magnon man, you're not Renaissance man. Right, right. But the truly spectacular ones, I mean, the ones that actually make the things we remember do tend to be kind of, you know, of that Renaissance mindset. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah. So I can talk about both of those, both Cro-Magnate Man and uh, <laughs> the Renaissance Man. So one thing in development is that there are very, very high barriers to entry. So first of all, in a given project, before you even know that it's going to move forward, you may have spent 100000 you may have spent half a million, you may have spent more. And you have to have that in cash. That's not money that you borrow from lenders and investors. You don't get those people until the deal is kind of shovel ready and it's going to move forward. So you have to be of significant financial means. And then, of course, you have to be able to sign a guarantee. What all that means is that it's a very self-selecting thing of who can do this. You have to be, it's basically an aristocratic venture when you, when you get right down to it. Who has enough money to sign this $5 million guarantee? 
And what that does is I think it often culls down the group of people who are even able to do development. And again, I work, I work in a development firm, a national development firm. I'm not uh, doing this, you know, on my own, so to speak, but that tends to drastically restrict the group of people who can do this in most cases. There's a certain self-selection of how did people get to this point where they have multi-intergenerational wealth. Um, there's a certain kind of conservative mindset. And so, um, and so maybe they're not actually Renaissance people. They, they've you know, been kind of preser- preserving a, a fortune, a family fortune. But if we go to the other example that you were giving of the Renaissance man, in theory, I, I'm in meetings all day with an asset manager who manages the portfolio and then with um, a contractor and an architect talking about a very specific aspect of a building and then a neighborhood association that's wanting, you know, I was once asked to put a, a greenhouse on the roof of a 15-story building. Well, then it was going to need an engineer's wet stand. I mean, you start getting into all these different things. It's quite humbling, you know. Um, I think if anybody takes the signs um, and, and is in those meetings and is, I think, forthcoming enough to realize that each of these people is more of an expert than oneself in the topic of, of discussion. But it, it does, you know, if you're able, it gives you that opportunity to to be a Renaissance man and, and to dabble at your own risk, of course. <laughs> I know one of the risks, and this comes from a, a mutual friend of ours, John Anderson, that we we both yes, know. Yes, right. John preaches a lot about not falling in love with a project. And and you talk up right up front about survival being like the key to success, which, you know, if you're in the shallow end of the pool, before you dip your toe in, that seems obvious. Right. Why is that not so obvious? Why Why do you have to say that up front? You know, there's a certain genre of real estate, uh, literature, right? So, you know, put zero down and turn it into 30 million. And I think, uh, some of that is from TV shows where there's kind of this rah, rah, you know, let's go and gut rehab things and, and so on. And, you know, I don't do a whole lot of rehab. I guess I'm doing a couple right now. And those are pretty scary in their own right. I mean, you take an example, like you, you get a small building, you don't realize that it was going to have to be sprinkled. And then, whoops, the water service that goes into the building isn't enough, you know, to handle the sprinkler capacity or whatever. So now you're digging up the front yard. Rehab is scary. But when you get into, especially into doing ground up development where you're excavating, you may have to dewater, you may have to put in foundation systems that go, you know, I have a project in California where there's going to be 40 caissons going into the side of this hill. I mean, it's just it can be quite scary. So I, I hope the book will uh, empower people to feel like this is possible, certainly at, at different scales. But I also didn't want to end um, without just giving a word of caution, because there's plenty of former developers out there, as a friend of mine said. And so it's just something that has to be has to be treated with respect, you know, for, for what it is. It's it's a it's a great and at times scary thing to do. You talk about the timing of a project and I worked uh, doing zoning, a lot of zoning work and permitting work in the early 2000s. That was where I, you know, uh, became the, the evangelical for strong towns thinking was during that phase of where I saw this succession of the opposite, the Cro-Magnon developer come in and essentially doing projects that were, in my estimation, just insane, but making lots of money doing it. There was this literal like period of time where like anybody, it seemed like anybody could be a developer because the market was bailing you out with with price increases. There was a whole different tune in two thousand eight. Then you talk about timing, and I think you know not all timing is that dramatic. How do you feel your way through the timing? Is that more of an art or a science? Do you get a gut feel for that, or is it something where like the 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 people who have been around longer are better at that, or is it uh, something where you need a little youthful recklessness? Boy, that's a great question. Um, I, I remember in, during my first internship, standing on the balcony, like the twelve-story balcony in in Madison, with a developer who was an uh, interesting guy, uh, kind of a colorful character. But we were standing there, and I had been doing financial analysis for a proposed office building and performance venue that he would condo out across the street. And we'd run the numbers 
and we had the site under control and there was going to be some TIF involved and as you can imagine and so on. We're standing there and we've done all those things and yet I will never forget him either looking at me or just he's just looking across the street at this vacant lot saying, is this going to work? And he audibly said, is this going to work? And one of the metaphors that I use in part two is that every building is a startup. And you may have been a successful entrepreneur in the past, but every building, and in this case, that was going to be a, you know, a $30 million uh, venture, anything can happen. I think the way that most developers deal with that risk is that they specialize. Obviously, it's very different to build a hotel, to build uh, affordable housing, to build office space, to build retail, or to to be a land developer and do subdivisions. Each of these is is a different species, so to speak. And so I think people, they certainly specialize in a kind of building or asset class, but they also usually specialize in a certain geographic region. And so, you know, I give an example in the book of let's take this situation where you're perceiving that a certain market is bustling and so you're looking at what to do. And so there's numerous ways that it could go wrong, basically. Maybe you build, for example, self-storage when what was needed was a hotel. So that's the wrong product. Um, even though the market was growing, you you misunderstood what the product was. Or you build a hotel, but it's too expensive for the people who go there. Or you build a great uh, hotel, but it's in the wrong part of town. Or you build a hotel, but you miss the timing. Uh, you know, I remember when I was living in Germany, when the the wall fell, and Berlin's real estate is its own story, but every dentist in Stuttgart thought, oh man, Berlin is going to go. It's the capital city. There's all this you know, land available. And they all invested in like 1995. Well, Berlin is super hot now, but most of those people invested way too early. So the answer to your question is that people specialize in a particular asset class and they usually specialize in a very specific geographic region. I think that's how we mitigate the risk. It feels to me like from a finance standpoint, you're making a strong case for local banks as opposed to having everything funded through uh, U.S. Bank or Wells Fargo in a, a, some mm -hmm. distant place. You're not making that case. I'm making that case. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, most construction loans, I should say, at least when you're doing either local or regional development, let's not talk about national, a lot of regional developers uh, it's very common that you use local banks because it's that local bank, A, that wants to put their sign up, uh, but it's B, they can do a better analysis of whether this is going to work or not. You pull something up. If you're sitting at your desk in San Francisco, you can pull up a map of Minneapolis, but you don't have a understanding of those streets and those intersections and the very the particularities of that urban fabric the way that somebody somebody more locally does. So it's very common, even in a larger transaction, for the construction loan to be issued by a local group, and then that loan is taken out by a national, you know, for permanent financing. But where were you going with it? No, no, that's exactly... We've... <laughs> We've tended to respond to market stress just in a macro sense by trying to make our economy more efficient. And, you know, five banks is more efficient than 10. 10 is more efficient than 20. One large bank is, is more efficient than 50 regional banks. But you, you lose something when you do that, right? Sure. I, I mentioned before we started, I, I can't say enough good about uh, Strong Towns, the book, and I'm going to actually be mentioning it to those students I'm speaking to tomorrow. One of the challenges and you're you're raising it, is that what is good for the city, namely incrementalism, it's difficult to have a business model that works for that. So I had a guy call me recently and he said, you know, he was trying to buy a fourplex, you know, a four unit apartment building. I said, you're not going to find any. <laughs> the reason is the ones that exist are, you know, 100, 120 years old or 80 years old. And when they come on the market, they're being bought by people who just got an inheritance and they don't really think about investment return. They're just like, oh, I want to buy something. So it's really old and it's usually people pay too much for it. The reason there's no new stock is because to take a single family house and go through the brain damage of rezoning it for a fourplex in, in most cities is no less difficult than rezoning it for 14 or 20 years. It's the same process. It involves many of the same headaches. And so it's just, it's rarely done. I have a project right now where because of an obligation in a master plan that we have in South Chicago, 
we need to do a single family neighborhood so that it's not just one unbroken landscape, obviously, of of uh, apartments. We were redeveloping um, the Robert Taylor Homes, which is a was formerly a, a massive public housing development. So we're really developing that, and we have to do this single-family subdivision, which is not at all our wheelhouse, and so we're partnering with someone else to do it, and so on. There's a bunch of different people involved. The first phase is just four houses, and I'm working on developments, you know, very, very large developments in other parts of the country, and getting this four-house phase going is not taking me a whole lot less time because there's a number of people involved, it's political, it's... You know, and I think that is one of the challenges. It's not to say that it's impossible, but it's just it's difficult to have a viable business model in which you're devoting the same amount of resources to a much smaller thing. But, you know, I think John Anderson and and, uh, and incremental development are showing great examples of it. So it's, I think the universe is big enough for both for sure. Let, let me ask you, as a related insight, I think you're familiar with what has happened in Minneapolis now with their zoning change. Absolutely. This is relatively new. So we're not seeing yes. the, um, you know, we're not seeing the results yet. I, I think it will be myself a number of years until we do see, but w- what do you think the impact of that will be from where you're sitting? I applaud it. I think it's fantastic. I don't think it's going to lead to a huge increase in the housing stock just because of the the people who are now in a position to do it probably, you know, I mean, development is, it's kind of like when people start renovating their house and they've seen things on TV and they're like, oh, this would be charming and we'll do this. And then by the end of the process, you realize, oh, this is a lot of, lot of work and there's a reason this is somebody's job. I think in the same respect, I, I, I don't anticipate that, um, that everybody's just going to be adding a granny flat or something. I, I don't know. Like, you know, and I guess I should say it's hard to say. What I will say is though, I don't think that in most of these markets, you know, I take San Francisco, for example. The whole city of San Francisco needs to go up like four stories. <laughs> Minneapolis doesn't have quite the housing problem that San Francisco does. And no doubt, if the city of Minneapolis is open to what it's open to in in this form uh, and other cities like it, then they'll continue to innovate and be open. I think, if I may say, the suggestion in Strong Towns that you had that the next level of density or of intensity um, should be by right. Maybe not anything, but wherever a given building is setting some ceiling at which, well, you can go up to this uh, basically by right. I know in in Durham, North Carolina, they changed um, the code such that in this certain downtown area, you could go up to 300 feet or 350 feet basically by right. And a 350 square foot tall building came screaming out of the ground. And I just think when I look at the number of units that are short, especially in these gateway markets, it's it's both and. It's belt and suspenders. I couldn't be more excited. Uh, but looking at, you know, when you're developing two or 300 units, I, I hope it works. I hope it works. And I, I'm, I encourage every city to do likewise. It seems to me like what Minneapolis did was like an important step, but, but that there's a whole ecosystem of and let me use your words, you know, there's people who specialize in that kind of development and they don't really exist, at least not in the numbers you would need to, to capitalize on this opportunity. Is that a fair statement? Well, you know, as I think about the, let's say that you're going to, you're going to do one of these developments and your cost is going to be Costs are so, so, so different in every market. Let me give you an example. So I have a project in California to develop it in Southern California. To develop a two-bed apartment there would cost me 600 grand. In Chicago, it's 400, a little little north of that. In North Carolina, it'd be 200 or a little less. So I, I'm really hesitant to throw out what it would cost in a market. But if you you know want to do a million-dollar project, so which let's, let's say that's four or five, six units, the financial resources that the bank is going to want to see in order to feel comfortable giving you, let's say, seven or 800000 this is a major distinction. It's not like buying something that exists because one of the primary things that gives banks comfort if you buy a building is that they can sell it, you know, if it doesn't work or if it doesn't rent for what you thought and they only give you a certain amount of the purchase price. But as I, as I share um, when my family did this when I was a kid, if you get six months into a construction project and you run out of money, 
or you hit a Native American burial site and you're going to have to do an archaeological dig for six months or it's the site's contaminated and you didn't realize it, the bank can't sell that. It's more of a liability than an asset. And so the personal guarantee whereby, you know, one of the industry standards is when you get, let's say, uh, on a big project, you know, you need to have about a million in cash or a cash equivalent and five million in net worth. Well, obviously, you're not going to need that if you do a four flat or a six flat, but it requires a significant amount of financial wherewithal that many or I dare say almost none of us have. And so I think that's one of the that's one of the barriers. There are ways around it. So in rural areas, you can get a USDA. The USDA will guarantee a construction loan. If you have a lot of time on your hands, you can get a HUD D4 loan. So there, and, I, and I'm sure that that's talked about at Incremental Development Alliance and other groups like that. But I, I do think that the barriers to entry, I was talking to a friend the other day and he, he pitched a deal that a city had an RFP on and I think he had a great design and he had, it was going to be, you know, a smaller development, maybe it was 12 units or 16. But when it came time to get a guarantee and get a bank that would say, yeah, we'll do this construction loan you just really, it's difficult. That's one of the things I should say that I hope the book is good at, not assuming that people know what those different instruments are or know those conventions and just trying to explain them in layman's terms and explaining what the workarounds are, explaining different options you have to mitigate them, but but nonetheless laying them on the table so you aren't surprised You know, when you have that conversation with the banker and they bring up that word guarantee that you haven't heard before. I, I think it's fantastic. And and I, I the reason why I've, I've been kind of, you know, delving into this and, and pushing you on it is because on the other end, we hear people who say, well, we want more affordable housing. We want more micro units. We want more and list the things. And, you know, part of the reason why the quote unquote marketplace is not delivering those is because of the way this stuff is financed, Right. Um, that's part of it. Um, it's, I, part, I, it's part of it. <laughs> I, I, w- I know. I, I, I would not say that the the financing is is the is the constraint. I mean, and, and the affordability of housing is a major pet peeve of mine, and it's kind of its own thing. But essentially, and as I'm sure you've you and others have talked about, the people who already own property in the city or already live there are basically diametrically opposed for property value reasons to the people who want to move there and buy. And, you know, since at least World War II and the advent of neighborhood associations, every new development, it seems, that is proposed, um, there's a request made for two changes, build slightly less and make it slightly nicer. And what that translates to is collect less revenue. You have smaller building, you're getting less revenue, even though you're paying the same for the land. So collect less revenue while building a nicer product. Well, how can you do that? How can you collect less revenue and yet build a nicer product? The answer is you build something that's luxury because that's your only option. And if you don't and you present it, it'll be rejected, at which point you lose the hundreds of thousands that you've already spent at risk to pursue this project. And so I talk about this at length in the book. um, And I think there are a number of solutions to that What also has to be borne in mind, you know, you talk about in the book how the amount of services, water, sewer, sanitary, all these things have exploded. There's been a related explosion in kind of the quality of of apartments in the last hundred years. So if you think about like the building I live at right now was developed in the 1920s, very little parking. So even parking alone, parking, the need for parking doubles the amount of land that you need to buy if it's going to be surface parking. So there, so there's an increase in the cost. You're buying twice as much land. You're building multiple spaces of parking, whether it's surface or structured. You're adding appliances, which didn't exist for all of human history, extra bathrooms, elevators, sprinklers, fire protection, air conditioning. And I would estimate that in the past hundred years, those different things that I mentioned have probably added an inflation-adjusted cost of fifty or 60000 a unit and that translates probably into three or $400 a month in rent. And as that's happened, you've also virtually eliminated sharing in, in apartment living. So, you know, for most of human history, people would be sharing bathrooms or sharing all, all, all kinds of different things in the way that we share bathrooms at work and when we go to stadiums and, and office buildings and so on. And so there's been a perfect storm. 
And in the past, I think where we would have said, we will build something that's affordable and we'll make it as nice as we can. Now we say, we're going to build something that you love, but some of you are really going to struggle to live here, to pay for it. That's its own topic. And I, I feel like in the same way that you have painted a picture in Strong Towns about the predicament, uh, not just a problem, but a predicament, I think that's really a predicament that we have gotten ourselves into an unprecedented standard of of luxury and amenity in the places where we live. It feels like there's this dichotomy where clearly the people who own property now and live in houses value the appreciation. Like they they want the price stability. They want the price to be high. Rightfully um, so. Right, until, until they sell or until they're trying to buy the next place, right? <laughs> the, the ideal would be I sell on, and then the next day the market crashes and then I buy, yes. right? Well, well, there's this tension in the American dream. The American dream has this component on the one hand that you can afford to buy a place to live, but on the other hand that the house is a good investment. Well, those can't be reconciled. If the house is a good investment, quote unquote, and it gets more and more expensive exponentially every year, it's not going to be affordable. But if it's affordable and you sell your home after 20 years and it's worth what you paid for it, then you say it's not a good investment. And so those are just, those are, those are very difficult. Uh, let me know when you, when you find the record, oh, uh, you know, way to, way to resolve that. So let me ask this from the developer side. I've heard developers, you know, lament the high cost of th their materials, you know, the land, the buildings, the, you know, whatever, whatever uh, realm they're working in. I've also seen developers in a sense I'll say bailed out or uh, be able to be a little bit more reckless or, or a little more confident because rising property values, real or artificial, have, have in a sense created a cushion for them. Is there a side of that you fall on? Is it two sides of the same coin? You know, what, how does this work from a development standpoint? Would you rather have a market that was a little, you know, easier to get into or one that was kind of guaranteeing you a little bit more appreciation. There's so many different kinds of developers and business models. There's developers who would say that San Francisco situation is the best you can imagine. There's no, I mean, when you have a business, you don't, you don't want somebody else to just come in and do exactly what you're doing. Cause then, you know, it eats up your, your ability to, to earn a return. Um, to go back to the things that you mentioned, though, land and materials, it's conceivable in most situations that you can work out the price of a piece of land to be just fine. If you have a million dollar piece of land and you want the land to be 20,000 a unit, that's what is affordable. You put 50 units on it. You know, now maybe the city's saying you can only put 15. Well, that's where your affordability problem comes in, not the price of the land per se. The price of the land is always going to appreciate, you know, if it's a if it's a growing, I won't use the word growth. If it's a uh, if it's a, a dynamic place uh, that has great jobs and so on. Uh, materials are really not at all, I think, the concern. The price of lumber and concrete is really similar, or surprisingly similar, I should say, across the markets. The, the construction cost issues that you see in these bigger markets are actually directly tied to labor, which is tied to land. So if you, it's just like with parking and driving. If you add more lanes, more people drive, you need more lanes. Um, there's kind of a, a negative feedback loop with with land prices. If housing is too expensive because there there isn't enough supply, it's also expensive for construction workers. So then you have to pay construction workers way more than you would in other cities. Well, because you're paying construction workers way more than you would pay in other cities, the resulting apartment building that they build is quite expensive. And it it's a loop. And so it's a downward spiral where there's not enough supply and you know, you, then you're having to bring construction workers in from two hours away. And to your thing about whether to whether to work in a city where there are extreme constraints or not, I think I think that uh, yeah, if if you are developing and you go to a market where there's 20% vacancy, the market has collapsed. There's not going to be any reason to develop anything new. So there has to be a certain amount of um, tension in the market. Uh, but by the same token, there can be tension in a market that is that is San Francisco and tension in a market that is much cheaper. It's just the relationships. And I think as cities add more supply, the tension can exist, but at a lower price point, because if the construction workers have places to live that are affordable, then does it make sense? You know, there can be tension in a market that's super expensive and tension in a market that's 
that is comparatively very, very cheap, that relationship between the amount of supply and demand is is agnostic of how expensive it is in the market, as long as it can respond appropriately. If we look at San Francisco as, as kind of like the epicenter of housing affordability tension, let me throw a couple insights at you and have you just respond to them quickly. One is let's build our way out of this affordability problem. The more units we build, the lower the price will become. And, and essentially we can build our way out of this. In the long term, yes. Uh, in the short term, what happens is people see displacement. They see schools getting overcrowded. They have transit concerns. This is because we're at that predicament, not problem stage. And I think those are just arguments for not allowing oneself to to get in that extreme position in the first place. So I would say yes. I mean, I think that's that's a huge part of it. I think others have made a, a great case that that so what I do right now uses subsidies. But just to give you an example, if people say, well, more supply isn't the answer, we just need more subsidies. I was working on a project which has just now we've decided it's not going to go forward. I was going to be using very nearly, I don't even know if I can say the numbers, a substantial eight-digit number of subsidies on this large project, and it wasn't enough. I think you can't throw subsidies at what is inherently a supply problem. It's just difficult because there's not going to be a situation. San Francisco is not going to add a million units in three years, so it'd be impo- you know, or or a hundred thousand. So it's impossible to do that study. It's kind of a counterfactual, but um, I think supply is the primary answer in response to your question. Well, what about the idea that developers are just making? too much profit. I mean, they're, they're really taking advantage of the situation and what we need to do is, uh, is regulate that end of it. More rent control, more pricing controls on the other end. I would say that the, you know, the reward has to be tied to the risk and vice versa. So what, you know, would I have to pay someone to play a game of Russian roulette with me? There ought to be no price. No price ought to be sufficient because the downside is infinite, right? When you talk to somebody about, okay, let's do a development, they they understand the upside or the upside is very much on their mind. They're, they're not thinking about the downside. And actually, there's a, a great study out of UCLA that, that um, documented this, asking people kind of why they were really upset about this development. But I think if I ask the average person, okay, give me... of your retirement or give me some amount of money and I'm going to go invest it. And there's like a 20% chance you'll lose it all, you know, or a 30% chance you'll lose it all. How much do you require in return? Well, it'd be very different. It ain't 5%, right? (laughs) No, it's not. And, and the fact of the matter is that in many of these cases where you're pursuing a development and it doesn't go forward, you've already spent 50 grand or you've already spent a hundred grand. And so some of the projects have to make up for those losses. It's not to say that a lot of money can't be made um, in development, but, but again, risks and rewards are usually going to be in harmony. And so I think there's much better ways to properly align incentives than to try to, to get involved in, in regulating that profit. And just anecdotally right now, I can say, and I'm not in market development, but I know that in market development, it's not uncommon for firms to be waiting four or five years for a project to begin cash flowing based on their current capital stack and things that we don't need to discuss. But it can be very risky. A lot of the money that's being made right now is not in having a property that's generating cash flow every month for the developer. It's in selling it to a much larger institution that has lower return requirements. And so but if you build something and all your hopes are on selling it to some high bidder and that high bidder has to be three or four years in the future, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, nobody can tell you. And so to go back to the example of give me your money and there's a 30% chance you lose it all, what's your return? That's that's not hypothetical. You know, that's the real scenario. So I, that's anecdotally what I would add. Can I restate that? And, Please. And, and just make sure that we're on the same page in my understanding of what you're saying. If I'm at the front end of a project and, and I have the regulatory risk, I've got the financing risk, I've got the market risk, I've got all these risks in line uh, to deliver a, a finished product. 
I need a projected much higher rate of return because of all that risk. I should hope so. Yeah. If, if I'm the person who either as an individual or as an institution is coming, buying a finished product and then going to say rent out apartments, you know, I'm, I'm buying in a, a finished apartment complex and I'm going to rent out apartments. I still need a return because I have risk that the market could collapse or, you know, the, the property could go down. But I don't have all those other risks, so I can actually like have a have a lower return threshold for me to move ahead with that. Is that is that what you're getting? Absolutely, at? absolutely. And it's in this. It's in. It's the same sense as the bank would look at you if Chuck Marone strolled in and said, "I want to build a house versus I want to buy one." It's just a different. It's a it's a different thing. And so everybody has a different appetite for risk. And so uh, no small number of developers their business is kind of taking that big risk. And then as soon as it's finished or even before that, they sell it to somebody you have mutual funds invested with MetLife or, or Northwestern, somebody who is a big, big institution with a lot of money and they need to deploy it, but they don't have the stomach for the risk or it's just not in, that's not in their, in their wheelhouse. You know, that's not what their customers are for. I get back to the, the guy where you're standing on the roof and he's asking you like, is this going to work? It seems like that guy is, is at this front end. Like that, that guy is taking on a lot of risk and that's, that's different than the, uh, the mutual fund or the REIT or whoever, who's going to buy it at the end product. What, what kind of mentality do you have to have to be that, that guy, you know, that you're, you're meeting with. This goes back to self-selection and I have, I have worked with and for people before who made the mistake of saying that, well, the people who have succeeded have all taken huge risks. So that's all you have to do, just take huge risks. No, no, <laughs> you can take huge risks and fate may not, you know, play along and 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 you you lose. But I mean, that guy in question, I happen to know that he he got started by maxing out, you know, five credit cards, using the cash from that as his equity to buy uh, an industrial building rehabbing and refinancing it out and paying off the credit cards before the 0% APR expired. This was like in the 80s. Well, you know, he created probably a place where some business has their offices or, you know, if, in the case of somebody doing that with residential, he created a, a nicer place to live than existed before. It cost the city nothing. He took the risk for doing that. And if he's going to take that risk, then I think there has to be an appropriate reward, which is not to say, though, that uh, I had all advised people to take that risk. But I think as you as you start talking to people who have been very successful in development, you're going to find people who have that appetite for risk. But the ones who are still solvent will tell you it's a startup and you just, you can't engineer out risk. And, and I also think about different shows. I, I think about this, um, I've only seen like one episode. What is the show where they have startups, Shark Tank? Right. Yeah. Actually, and, I, I was, I, as you were asking that, I'm like, oh gosh, you're, you're talking to a guy who doesn't watch television. It, I don't watch television either, but it, so I've seen, yo, I'm going to tell you my, when we've traveled on vacation, for some reason, my daughters will turn on CNBC, these two little kids and they love Shark Tank. They think it's the greatest show ever. Right. It's entertaining. And the point that I would just make though, is that these guys sit there, the guys and gals sit there and they listen to these business ideas and the same thing happens in reality at VC firms and angel investors all over the country every day. And there's a certain sense of, well, I've heard hundreds of these pitches and I, and I know what's going to work and know what's not going to work. They don't. I remember reading about the firm that one of the firms to whom Airbnb pitched, you know, when they were raising a series A round of funding and that firm has Airbnb's pitch deck or its proposal framed on the wall because, you know, they missed it. They didn't know. And they thought, well, this isn't going to work. And it did. And this goes back to the thing that you, you talk about over and over in the book, complex systems. And we haven't scratched the surface in talking about how the design um, and the creation of a new building is a complex undertaking where you can't get it in a bottle. You know, I write about it and I, I keep trying to learn and I kind of keep trying to put it in a bottle, but you can't. And 
um, as competition increases and as the land gets more and more and more expensive, you have to make bolder and bolder assumptions about what's going to happen and what you can realize. And so sometimes you have the winner's curse. You paid the most and you have to do this huge project and it's going to fail and it's going to go back to the bank and it'll be a disaster. But even if, even for the person who's done it over and over, nobody can tell you for sure. Nobody can say, I've been involved in this and I know. They don't. We're getting close to the end of the time We've got a lot of, and I've gone, I've literally gone through like a fourth of the things I wanted to discuss with you. So I feel like we may have to do this again. Okay. Because I'd love to get into the design stuff. I mean, I feel like you've got a ton of things to add. I want to, on this risk thing, I want to flip it around and and ask this from like the community's perspective. And I I think you could call it idealistic or or maybe even naive sense. I, I really do think that local governments need to be the representative of the community. I mean, that, that when you're talking about like what is in the best interest long-term of the group of people who are living in this place, the people representing them is the local government. They're the shareholder, or in a sense, the board of directors of this local corporation that we all belong to when we live in a place. If I'm part of that group and I'm looking at, and I'm trying to understand this risk-reward profile of developers... I have two questions. First, what can I do to lower the risk so that I get the kind of development that I I want as a community? And then second, is there a case for having uh, the many hands, you know, a hundred people taking lots of crazy risks where, you know, a bunch of them will fail, but a bunch of them will work. Or is there, is there a case for having, you know, a few solid players that I can rely on taking less risk, but maybe have a less dynamic market? Do, do those two kind of questions, I feel like they're related. Does, does that make yeah. sense? You know, if you're in the city and you're doing planning or economic development or at a neighborhood level, and in some senses, you, you have the opportunity to set the rules for how this should be done, or you get to kind of you, you have a lot of say over it. And I think what would be so great, and, and I think about this also in, in when I'm applying for soft sources of funding and so on, I think the average person, obviously we all have to do our jobs and it's specialized, but one of the things that I try to capture in the book is a bit about the process. And I just, I can't imagine a better way, at, you know, without giving you specific answers, how do we lower the risk and is there a case for many hands? What I would just love to see, and maybe maybe it's uh, impossible, is for different people at the city level, and it's probably going to be more senior folks, to try to imagine like, okay, we've set these rules out, and we're saying that this ought to be a reasonable set of guidelines for how this should happen. Let me go and try to find a project, or or let me let me get somebody, perhaps a, a developer who's retired, who's uh, but who has done projects that people respect in the city and kind of a, uh, like a mock project or just to to kind of kick the tires on the system that has been created, uh, both in terms of what it is, what effect it's had on pricing and what effect it has had on kind of the gauntlet that's required to get a project. Because you're only going to have many hands if the process is relatively intuitive and has a reasonable amount of brain damage for the return for the result. And I think you, one can only really assess how one has done, you know, have we created the system that we want or, or understand maybe how it ought to be changed. If one spends a few days just thinking about it from the other side of the table, that's really the thing that I try to capture in the book. And I think that is really the solution in many of these cases is to think about it from the other side of the table. So at the risk of asking you know, city people to do things that that maybe developers don't do. There's no substitute for having sat on the other side of the table, if if only briefly, and tried to see and look at what one has created as a regulatory framework from the side of you know the small guy, or maybe come alongside. Maybe that's even better. Find a, a an incremental uh, developer or a small developer and come alongside what they're doing. I remember you saying that um, somewhere, maybe it was Memphis, where there was a demonstration project showing all the things that could be done to transform a neighborhood, and they were all illegal. You know, Taking that same approach in coming alongside either a large developer or a small kind of community favorite uh, good story, and 
just sitting in the background to see what their process is like and observe if I was on this side of it, what are the things that are unnecessarily cumbersome, which could be removed? I think probably even a two or three day experience of doing that would, would be voluminously more helpful than any specific uh, suggestion that I could give. I knew I was going to like this conversation. This is the first time you and I have ever chatted, and I, I think we've been meaning to to for a while. Yeah, my gosh, we blew through an hour, and I feel like we have <laughs> like way more to talk about. Let me get this out there. Let's let's come back in a in a quarter or a, a few months, Absolutely. and uh, and expand on this a little bit more. I'm interested in in our audience to get the feedback, and uh, let's let's continue this conversation. That would be great. I'd be flattered to be on. Ben Stevens, the book is The Birth of a Building. Um, ben, if people want to follow your work or get a hold of you, is there a good place preferably to do that? I'm trying to work on that, yeah. Um, obviously, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. I, I would go first to birthofabuilding.com. That's the book's website, and it'll direct you to the different you know social platforms and, and, and so on that I have, but that's probably the best place to start, birthofabuilding.com. Ben, has been fantastic to me. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Chuck. We'll talk again soon. Take care. Okay. Yeah. Bye. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.